Hey everybody and welcome to Take a Deep Breath. Uh, I'm delighted to uh, present today's guest which is Patrick McEwen uh, and this is the second time that we've had Patrick on the on the Breathcast. Uh, Patrick's got a brand new book coming out next week called The Breathing Cure um, and in there he covers such a wide range of topics uh, and in this podcast we go through a lot of that too. So, so buckle in for the next 80 to 90 minutes of pure breathing science. Uh, For those of you that don't know, Patrick is the author of The Oxygen Advantage. Uh, He trained under Biteko Constantine um, and uh, he is somebody that is deep, deep, deep in the breathwork field and a true expert. Um, His new book is fantastic. I've been lucky enough to get an advanced copy of it. Um, It's a big book and it's an accessible book and it's got a lot of detail and it's got a lot of breathing exercises and what you're going to get in today's uh, breathcast is not only going to get a conversation with Patrick you're going to get Patrick teaching us some of the breathing exercises as well which is very very cool so he'll take us through a number of those exercises um, he'll take us through a bit of the book um, and we'll just have a good conversation about what's going on there so, so uh, by far one of my most interesting chats with a, a breath expert and I love Patrick I've, I've been trained under him a couple of times now under Pateco and the Oxygen Vantage and as I said we've had a couple of conversations so uh, this episode is packed full of breath goodness so so as I said get your pen and paper ready uh, sit back enjoy practice some of the breathing exercises as well um, in the description below is a link to the book and to Patrick's website, The Oxygen Vantage. Um, it is the 29th of January now. This podcast will probably go out this weekend. Um, and I think the book comes out on the 8th of February 2021. So depending on where you're listening to this, when you've listened to this, uh, I highly recommend going out and getting a copy of that book. I don't think you'll be disappointed if you're interested in breathing and breath work. Um, and we also talk a bit about mindfulness, which is lovely as well. And uh, we, we finished off podcast with, with, a, with a lovely sentiment from Patrick about mindfulness being present and 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 living in a place of happiness um, and a place where we're not just stuck in our head all the time, which is definitely something I, I still suffer with and something I'm working on all the time. So, uh, so yeah, so uh, I feel so privileged to talk to Patrick. Um, he, he, he's a wonderful force when it comes to breath work and, you know, just somebody that just wants us to feel better. You know, he just wants to get that information out there so that we can be functional breathers. And we'll talk about what functional breathing is. Um, no other messages from me. Let's just get stuck into the breath cast. Uh, here is Patrick McEwen talking about the breathing cure, his new book. Let's get stuck into the breath cast. Cheers. Patrick, thank you for coming back on the Take a Deep Breath podcast. It's uh, it's lovely to see you again. It's an early start for us both. How, how are you doing this morning? Good, Mike. How are you? Yeah, yeah, really, really good, and uh, really excited to, to get stuck into your, your new book. So, can I ask you first of all just to introduce the title of your book and uh, I, I don't know a short synopsis of, of what the book's about? Sure. The the title is called the Breathing Cure. Now, I didn't come up with the title of it because we're always afraid to use the word cure, um, you know, just in case people kind of think that we're saying that breathing is a magic bullet. But I went with the title. It was chosen by our US publisher. I actually think it's fairly pertinent because I suppose, Mike, we have to consider the application and the potential of breathing exercises. And when I look at breathing and the depth of breathing, it's not just about 
you know, what you hear people often say, go and take a deep breath. It's, it's nothing like that. It's changing breathing patterns. And by influencing breathing from functional breathing from three different dimensions, the biochemical, the biomechanical, and resonance frequency breathing, we can influence pretty much all of the major disciplines of medicine. So for people with respiratory complaints, we can improve control of breathing. We can reduce symptoms of breathlessness, wheezing, coughing. For people with mental health issues, we can make significant differences for people with anxiety, panic disorder, PTSD, and depression. People with sleep issues, we can influence insomnia, snoring, and obstructive sleep apnea. And I've just had a, a scientific article that I wrote in conjunction with an ear, nose, and throat doctor, Carlos O'Connor, and Dr. Plaza, and we had it published. It was peer-reviewed and published just two days ago in the Journal of Clinical Medicine. So it's a, it's a high-impact journal. Mm -hmm. And if we were to look then at functional movement and the relationship between functional breathing and functional movement, diabetes is influenced by how we breathe. And by changing breathing patterns, we can improve diabetic control. Epilepsy, for 100 years, it has been shown that hyperventilation can contribute to some forms of epilepsy. Mm. And, you know, even if we're looking at dentistry, craniofacial development, development of the jaws, whether children are going to develop crooked teeth or not, because that's going to be influenced by mouth breathing or not. So, you know, breathing has been overlooked. It's really, really, it's, it's really, to be honest, which I don't know whether it's frustrating or if it's bewilderment. Um, and the, when I think of the industries and I think of, the very intelligent people in medicine and dentistry, how did they miss this one? I really wonder it. And this is not new information. And the Breathing Cure is putting it out there. It's a big book. It's 500 and something pages. And uh, it's 190,000 words. There's about 40 pages of references, but I've made it accessible to what at least I've tried to in that the first two chapters contain all of the exercises. The rest of the chapters then are looking at specific issues. Women's breathing, totally different to men's, um, known since 1905, you know, and yet how many females know about the impact of breathing? How many females know about the impact of changing hormone levels and how that's going to influence breathing and how that in turn then contributes to pain, mm -hmm. fatigue, anxiety, symptoms of PMS, and then postmenopausal women, how breathing can influence sleep disorder breathing. So, you know, I think it's really, I think I would say that 2020 was the year of the breath. It was a, it's a breathing revolution that's going on now. I've waited 20 years for this to happen. Um, and it was a long slog. And breathing does have a little bit of a bad rap because people have been talking and teaching breathing exercises and not necessarily knowing the physiology of what was happening behind it. And I remember, you know, taking this advice back in 1995 or six, I was doing final exams in Trinity College in Dublin. So I suppose it was 1996. I was anxious going into the exam, one particular exam. And I went for a walk for two minutes and I went and I started taking these full big breaths because I believed at that time that it was beneficial to take these full big breaths. And I went into the exam hall, I was spaced out, I was lightheaded. I never realized that the more air I was breathing, it was reducing blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. Mm. 
it was entirely the wrong thing to do. Now, how many times have we heard in the Western world, take big breaths, breathe harder, breathe more air because it brings more oxygen throughout the body. Mm. We have to question that. And it's not just about the biochemistry. And I think so. also, Mike, the point that I'd like to make is that breathing, we get, we, when people train in breathing, they train according to traditions. They typically have their guru. And their guru was saying, this is the way it is. Mm. I had my guru, Constantine Buteco. I followed his method, which is a wonderful method, focused primarily on the biochemistry. Wonderful method. Not taking into consideration enough about the biomechanics. Not looking at all about the resonance frequency breathing. The yoga instructor is focusing on the biomechanics and often sacrificing the biochemistry and not looking at resonance frequency breathing. The heart mat instructor who's looking to improve heart rate variability is focusing on cadence breathing or paced breathing, not looking at the biomechanics and not looking at the biochemistry. And who is looking at nasal breathing? Mm -hmm. Because it's only with nasal breathing that we can influence all three dimensions. And all three dimensions, even though studies will show that, you know, they may not be as interconnected as strongly. We still have to look at the connection here. If you've got good biochemistry, you typically will breathe low. So you will have good biomechanics. And if you've got good biomechanics and you breathe low, you in turn will breathe slow. And slow breathing then is influencing your biochemistry. And, you know, that's the depth that I wanted to look at with the breath. And the other point that I like to make is that it's not just about how we breathe inside the studio. You know, the, the breathing instructor who is teaching breathing exercises to their group of students in the studio, why not show people, why not show the students how to breathe outside the studio? Why not show them how to bring these good breathing patterns to help with their sleep, to improve their resilience, to help deal better with stress, to significantly reduce asthma? Like even in the UK, and Ireland, for example, these two countries, two of the highest countries with the highest rates of asthma in the world. And I've been seeing and reproducing results to it. I would expect a 50% reduction of symptoms in two weeks from people who genuinely put the exercise into practice. Mm -hmm. 20 clinical trials on the Buteco method for asthma. Um, and yet the vast majority of people with asthma and children go into their doctor's surgery Many of them will be mouth breathing. The doctor gives them medication. There's no attention paid to how they are breathing. And these children and adults will continue to have symptoms because of a poor breathing pattern that's feeding into their condition. Mm. So that's my rant over for this morning. Thank you. No, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And um, I, I, I think completely differently now about, about things like TUMO or Wim Hof or holotropic. And, 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 and my comparison I make in my mind now is... is they're, they're great and have a purpose, but it's like me. I've got I've got bad posture from years of sitting behind a computer and I've got a bad back because of that and dysfunctional breathing's played a role. But if I try and do a deadlift now, that's not a good thing to do. I need to get all my muscles right and I need to kind of get my base 
sorted before I start to do all the, you know, sexy stuff. And I think that it's really important people hear that. It's, we've got to get that functional breathing right. And we've got to understand, let's get those basics set up and all the work you've done to, you know, all these things that can be helped. How, how would you, if you, in a short summary, how would you define the difference between functional and dysfunctional breathing? Because I think it's really important if people don't know that, what, what are the differences there? So functional breathing is effortless breathing. Breathing should never be an effort. Functional breathing is in and out through the nose, driven by the diaphragm. It's regular. There's a natural pause on the exhalation. Dysfunctional breathing involves effortful breathing. There's an effort involved in breathing. And dysfunctional breathing will often be mouth breathing, not always, but a good movement from the upper chest and slightly faster breathing. So that would be the main difference. And it's just a habit. And it, it is influenced by genetics. There's no question. It's, it's influenced by a number of things. <clears throat> lifestyle, you know, sitting down or sedentary lifestyle is one. And how common is it? 50% of people with lower back pain have dysfunctional breathing. 75% of people with anxiety have dysfunctional breathing. So can you imagine the thousands of people with anxiety? Yeah. And they're doing cognitive behavioral therapy, but they're having that faster and slightly higher um, breathing pattern. So they're breathing upper chest, probably irregular breathing as well if they're prone to panic disorder. Mm. And their breathing pattern is feeding into their condition. So they're doing, you know, great stuff with CBT, but it's not going to change respiratory physiology. And we also have to look at their sleep patterns. Mm. You know, and this is where... I think the healthcare professionals, Mike, really need to um, to start opening, broadening their horizon a little bit. You know, if I was going to a psychotherapist for anxiety, I would love to see a psychotherapist who has a good understanding, not just of CBT and counseling tools, but can also recognize, even just to recognize if the patient in front of them has a dysfunctional breathing pattern. And at least to show that to the patient, your breathing is a little bit too fast. And it's not just about the speed of the respiratory rate, because this has been a mistake made in the treatment of mental health patients. Um, so, for example, the therapist would say, well, your breathing is 20 breaths per minute. Your breathing is much too fast. Mm -hmm. And the therapist, in fairness, would say, slow down your breathing. But in the process of slowing down the breath, the size of each breath increased disproportionately, which caused increased minute ventilation. And it had the opposite effect to what was intended. So when we look at the breath, it's not just about timing the, the breath. It's not just about the number of breaths per minute. It's looking at the respiratory rate, but it's also looking at the depth or the amplitude of each breath. Because ultimately, it's the volume of the air that we breathe per minute, which is influencing carbon dioxide in the blood. And it's the carbon dioxide in the lungs, which determines the CO2 in the blood. And of course, CO2, how many people think it's a waste gas when in reality, um, it's very common, for example, for people with dysfunctional breathing patterns to have cold hands and cold feet. Mm. And that's normal. You know, not everybody, but it's common. It's very common for people with dysfunctional breathing patterns to frequently yawn and sigh and to feel tense, to wake up with a dry mouth in the morning, you know, to feel... They often feel as well, it's kind of ironic, they often feel that no matter how much air they breathe, they're just not getting enough air, that air hunger. And even though these people are breathing too much, likely 
to be breathing too much in the first instance. And, um, but, you know, breathing can be trained. You know, it is that, it is that function in the human body that we can train breathing patterns. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, then we can influence other functions outside of our control. And resilience is really the word that comes into mind. Performance. How could you have a child, a teenager or an adult perform to the best of their ability if they have poor breathing patterns, which is a feeding into agitation of the mind, which is feeding into poor sleep quality? You know, it's not going to happen. They won't have the focus. They won't have the concentration. They don't have the energy levels. And not only that is, but happiness, mood. You know, if we wake up in the morning and we're, you know, every one of us is prone to having a bad night's sleep every now and again. That's normal, you know. But when it happens consistently and that person is waking up every morning and they're waking up almost that they feel that they've had a hangover, how on earth could we be in a good mood? And this is where as well with anxiety and depression, etc., there is a link. Poor sleep is really the keystone here and breathing can play a role. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I've experienced that for years, just having that poor sleep. And, and, and the, the sad thing is we adapt to it in some way because yes. you almost don't even know what great sleep is if you've had bad sleep for years and years. So you, you think, oh, I can get by on, on six hours of sleep. And then you then you get some good sleep and you, you look different in the mirror the next day, you feel different. So it's, uh, no, no, it's very interesting. I, I, Patrick, what I'm keen to do is, is I'd love to get stuck into the books. I know we're going to do some breathing mm. exercises, but I guess what I'd like to know before we do that is, so the Oxygen Advantage came out a couple of years ago. What, what's made you then write this, this new book? What was the kind of cause for this second book on breathing? Yeah, I just felt like the Oxygen Advantage was, you know, I put a, it was a great work at the time. And I think it's still a good, it's a good work in terms of breathing. The emphasis is more on performance. So there's very much an emphasis towards the athletic population, which I wanted to do. Um, the Breathing Cure is kind of opening up breathing, that it's looking at topics that... Yeah, I have covered them. Like I wrote a book on anxiety back in 2010, sleep in 2011, children's breathing in 20, 2009, 2003 and four, asthma in 2003, four. But it's looking at those topics, but it's also looking at topics that I hadn't covered to date. Diabetes, epilepsy, women's breathing. I included a chapter on sex because I think that's important as well. If nothing else, it's going to generate some debate. Um, asthma, covid Functional movement, you know, how many people are going to gyms and they're working on their core and uh, they're looking to improve their functional movement, but not necessarily looking at their breathing and also in rehab, you know. So, for example, if an individual has dysfunctional movement, it does increase the risk of injury. And when we're thinking of the diaphragm breathing muscle, even just from a biomechanical point of view, it's not just for respiration, but it's also for stabilization of the spine and you know the stability of the, the spine postural control and the generation of what's called intra-abdominal pressure and um, so the diaphragm breathing muscle performs a number of functions even the connection between the diaphragm and the mind and i just wanted to kind of bring that out so yeah so i brought in a chapter on dentistry you know the dental industry and we know professor john mew in the united kingdom dr mike mew and Sometimes I feel that the industry has really, God, given them such a hard time. You know, what was John Mew saying other than breathe through your nose with your tongue resting on the roof of the mouth because this is going to influence the development of your face. And orthodontists criticizing them, ridiculing them, 
um, Luke causing he lost his dental license. He got frustrated at the age of ni- 89 years of age. You know, and here is a man that's trying to, to set out preventative measures. And I like I was in their surgery back in 2010 when I was writing a book and I sat down, I watched patients coming in and out. And I remember a 20 year old man come in, a young man come in and um, he had he didn't have good craniofacial development. His jaw, his lower jaw was very far forward and his maxilla was very far back. And um, he was wondering, could Mew help? And Dr. Mew says, unfortunately, it's too late. Now, that's what they said back 10 years ago. It may have changed now. And they said that the only outcome is surgery. But if we had got you as a child, you wouldn't have had to need surgery. You know, like, why is this happening? And these kids with, you know, of course, it's important that our face develops the way it should grow. Like, we have to be real about this. We all want to have an attractive looking face, or at least we want to develop a face that's to the best of our genetic ability. But if we are mouth breathing as I was as a kid, you have a compromised airway. Your nose is is looking so big because of the maxilla being set back. The mandible is set back. You tend to have a double chin, even though you don't put on weight, not just because you have excess fat, but because the jaws aren't forward enough in the face. So you have a weak chin, you have a flat face, you're tired. And all of these things like, this is not new. I have a, a magazine behind me or a dental journal around the time, The Dental Cosmos in 1909. And it talked about how mouth breathing and how mouth breathing causes crooked teeth. And, you know, then, and it's not just that it's been debated in dentistry, but why has nobody done anything about it? And more so, Mike, why have those dentists who have done their best and those medical doctors who have done their best, why have they been attacked? Mm-hmm. Why is there such a vested interest in the status quo? You know, and I really wonder, we had a, we had a debate on this with healthcare professionals. It was joined by a number of different top orthodontists and James Nestor was amongst us. Dr. William Hang, Dr. Mike Mew, Dr. John Mew, Mark Moeller. It was conducted by the AAMS. And the question come up, why has there been no innovation or no kind of, you know, research? Why has it not got the credit? Why has breathing not been, how come, why is it being overlooked? And I made one point. The reason that it is being overlooked is because it doesn't promise significant profit. And that mm-hmm. is the reality of it. If, if the industry, if breathing was to promise significant profit or the avoidance of significant loss, then doctors and dentists would get behind it because there would be a monetary incentive there. But there's no monetary incentive because it's a time-consuming effort. But if we were to look at the bigger picture here, in terms of the child with asthma, who doesn't just have asthma, but they're tired because their mouth is open. They're going to develop more likely to develop craniofacial abnormalities. They're more likely to have sleep disorder breathing. We know from Karen Bonnock's study that if the child, you know, the brain is developing during the formative years. And if the child is sleep disorder breathing, they have a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. Mm-hmm. So think of the cost of that. So here we have a cost, not just in terms of social costs, the quality of life for the kid, 
the quality of life for the parent, but the economic cost. Because this child, increased asthma, going to require more um, doctor visits, more medication. Um, if the, the asthma is unstable, we're talking about hospitalizations. We're also talking about reduced productivity in terms of sleep. We're talking about the cost of correcting the child's crooked teeth. And if the teeth are, and face don't develop the way they should, possibly surgery at a later age. And a breathing, and I'm not saying that this is a cure at all, but I'm saying to the industry, please give it a chance. And, you know, that's why I wrote the books back in 2003, because I had no um, support, none. And I, too, felt that, you know, I was talking to a brick wall. So I said back in 2002, 2003, I'm going to get this information out there. And that's why I wrote the book Asthma Free Naturally. Because it's getting the information right into the hands of the people who need it. And I felt that if change was going to happen, it was going to happen with the sons, the daughters, the mothers, the fathers, the grandparents. It was going to be driven from the grassroots upwards. And when parents were demanding from doctors that why didn't you tell me to breathe through my nose? My sleep now is much better. My asthma just feels easier. And it's not just enough about breathing through the nose. We also have to address breathing patterns. So, you know, uh, but I'm delighted because now it's happened. And James Nestor, his book, The Brett or Brett, has been one of the most influential books on breathing in the last 20 years. And there is no doubt that he has contributed. I would say that he has made the greatest contribution to breathing in 20 years. And I'm grateful for that because it's lifted the awareness for all of us because we're in this field. We knew it worked. Like we are the ones that are working with the individuals coming in. We're seeing the differences. And um, when you have something that you feel that it's beneficial and it's, it's no side effects, you know, it makes common sense. So James Nestor's book definitely has helped here. Yeah, I was watching a, a Mike Mew uh, podcast the other day, actually, and, and uh, he's going to come on this podcast soon, fingers mm. crossed. Um, and thank you for that recommendation. Um, and he said something along the lines of, why do people think we're being born with extra teeth and these extra teeth need to be taken out? What, what other animals have got extra teeth and they have to have surgery? Uh, and just just those words, it was just, it just was kind of a, yeah, that's so weird, isn't it? Why don't we question that more and more? What a, what a bizarre thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And, it's because and, it's so common, it's yeah. been accepted as being normal. It's yeah. not normal. It's not normal to have overcrowding of teeth. Mm-hmm. You know, overcrowding of teeth is not because the teeth are too big. It's because the jaws are too small. But the real problem here is if the jaw is too small for the tongue, where is the tongue going to go? Mm. But into the airway. And if the tongue is going into the airway during sleep, that's going to increase the risk of obstructive sleep apnea. Mm. And obstructive sleep apnea is a condition that it exerts a great toll on the human body because it's disrupting sleep and it's putting the individual into sympathetic stress activation. It's Mm. increasing their blood pressure it's putting a stress in the heart. It's leading to arrhythmias. It can contribute to cancer, to mm-hmm. dementia, to all of these conditions that we want to try and avoid. Um, but yeah, it's it's Mike. Mike makes good points, definitely. Yeah, and and um, it's wonderful to see, as you mentioned, you know, pa- Patrick um, James's book, 
yes. the success you've had. Mike's got a big following now on social media. Mm. Uh, and uh, again, on this same podcast I was watching that he was on, he's saying that he really contributes a lot of his message getting out there with a the thanks to social media now, because to, to the point you were making, the establishment in some parts mostly doesn't want to hear about this free stuff that we can do that can make such a, a big difference yeah. to people's lives. Um, just, just while we're on the subject of mouth, because um, I am keen to explore this. So I'm tongue-tied mm. and I know that you've got a chapter on tongue-tied. So can you just share a bit about what, what what's going on there and why you've mentioned yeah. that? Yeah, so tongue-tie is, is the string that's holding the tongue to the floor of the mm. mouth. And if it's too tight... The issue is that the child growing up or adult, but the child is not able to elevate their tongue. And the first thing the problem is with breastfeeding. So a child that's tongue tied is not able to feed from the mother and ends up chomping on the mother. The mother becomes very uncomfortable. The child doesn't try because the child isn't getting adequate nutrition. And then a, a plastic bottle or a, a teeth is introduced. Mm. Breastfeeding is not just for nutrition, but it's for manipulation of the face, the muscles of the face necessary for craniofacial growth. So the other aspect about tongue tie is that when the tongue is, is when the tongue is, when the tongue is on the floor of the mouth, it's not able to elevate into the palate. Mm. And ideally we want the lips together, breathing in and out through the nose with the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. And it's the pressures exerted by the tongue and the roof of the mouth which help to develop the shape of the top jaw of the maxilla. And ideally we want the top, the shape of the top jaw of the maxilla to be the same shape as the tongue, which is U-shaped and is wide. And when the maxilla is shaped U-shaped and wide, there's no overcrowding of teeth because there's plenty of room in the jaw for the teeth. But not only that, when the tongue is resting in the roof of the mouth, it's driving the shape of the face forward. So the lower 50% of the face is influenced by nose breathing and correct tongue resting posture. So we want three quarters of the tongue to rest in the roof of the mouth. And it's the pressures exerted by the tongue, which is helping to drive the lower half of the face forward. So for example, the tip of the chin should be nearly as far forward as the point of the nose. Mm -hmm. And if you look at people who are very beautiful, they typically have very good forward, face, forward facial growth. And it's not just that they're beautiful looking, but they also function very well because they've got a good airway. Now, tongue tie has been known. Of course, this has been around for a long time. In the 16th century in France, midwives had extra long, they had one extra long fingernail. And when a baby was born, they looked into the baby's mouth. And if the, if the tongue was tied, they released it with their fingernail. Wow. I know it kind of sounds gross, but... You know, I suppose you have to look at it this way. Back in the 16th century, babies had to breastfeed mm. or they die, you know. Mm. So in order for the baby to live and to thrive, it was essential that the baby was able to, to take milk from the mother. So, yeah, it, this is another aspect that's overlooked, even though our ancestors knew about it, you know, and it's not even known what extent in the population that tongue tie is significant. I know Brazil as a country, they have a much greater awareness of tongue tie mm -hmm. because I think it's the, also the impact, not just on craniofacial development, but also on speech. Um, so it can impact a number of different things. So, and also, I don't know enough about in terms of if the tongue is tied, what pressure is that putting on the neck, for example, um, on forward head posture? 
So mm. could it be influencing the entire posture of the human body? And it's likely that it is. I know people who have released it, that they've said that once the tongue was released, they felt a release in terms of tension, postural yeah. tension. So the tongue is performing probably more functions that like, I'm, I'm, I'm no expert in the tongue. Um, myofunctional therapists would be absolutely the best people to, to um, you know, and that might be an interesting podcast actually, is to talk mm. with Joy Muller. Okay. Um, there's Eva Tanner in the UK. Um, there's, there's myofunctional therapists in the UK who are really, really good. And this would open up the whole possibility of chewing and correct tongue resting posture, you know, muscle tone, but muscle function and also the relationship with dentistry and speech and development. Yeah. Oh, Patrick, you've just opened up something there because um, I went to see my dentist a couple of months ago. Uh, well, not mine, just a, a dentist while I was in Poland with my partner. And she and the dentist said, uh, if you don't get your tongue cut, the tongue tie, you're going to lose your two front teeth over the next two decades because the tongue's pulling at the gum and the gum's getting smaller and smaller. So I'm 40 now, so it's starting. So that's made me question it. But interestingly, I'm very, very tight always here. And I've tried to do, I've got a standing desk now, and I try and have correct posture, but nothing seems to get this pressure here. And I've got lower back yeah. pain. So I'm wondering, that's really interesting. I'm wondering now what connection the tongue could have, because I never would have connected that with with posture. So uh, no, I would, I'll look into that. And as a child, I had to have speech therapy. Um, and I had ADHD or a version of that. So I'm wondering again, I know the speech therapy was linked to the tongue tie, um, but yeah, the ADHD, maybe mouth breathing because, so no, yeah. oh, thank you. That, that I think you've just set me on a bit of a different path there with that. So very, very interesting. Mm. Sure. So let's, uh, let's, let's talk about the book. So you've got control of the, of the zoom screen. Um, so it's, it's really over to you, however you want to do yeah, this. So yeah. I think <clears throat> what we'll do is I'll just go through kind of the, the topics that we're covering in it. Um, we spoke about functional breathing patterns and we really need to be thinking about like in terms of the biochemistry and the biomechanics and the psychological triggers. This is how researchers would look at breathing. But the solution for dysfunctional breathing is looking at improving biochemistry. And that's more focused on having normal carbon dioxide in the blood and also a reduced chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. In short, carbon dioxide is the stimulus to breathe. And if you're overly sensitive to the accumulation of carbon dioxide, your breathing is typically faster, probably more upper chest because faster breathing and upper chest often go hand in hand. But you're more likely to feel as well feelings of suffocation. Mm -hmm. And that would be definitely, for example, people with panic and anxiety, but also people with asthma can have, you know, um, strong chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide buildup. And we can determine or at least get us some idea of this by measuring the Bolt score. And that's what I'll just bring you on to. So when, for example, an individual has dysfunctional breathing patterns, their Bolt score is typically lower than 25 seconds. And that's based on a paper by Kiesel. And Kyle Kiesel is a professor of physical therapy. So what I'm just going to do is just pull up the piece in the book mm. that looks at Kiesel's study. Um, because one second there. So in addition, so the Kiesel's participants. Now, just want to see this as well. Participants with poor breathing, and this was in Bradley's paper. They scored lower on the FMS, which is the functional movement screen. I know it has its critics, but, you know, it's a screen, screening tool to assess functional movement. 
87.5% of people who passed the functional movement screen were classified as diaphragmatic breeders. So onto Kiesel's paper, because that's not it. So in 2017, then Kiesel looked at 51 subjects and he looked at their breeding from a biochemical point of view, looking at carbon dioxide, from a biomechanical point of view, looking at the high-load test, and also from a psychophysiological point of view, looking at the Nijmegen questionnaire. But his conclusion was that, now interestingly, out of the 51 subjects, Mike, only five of them had normal breathing. And these were 27 years of age. So 10% of this studied population had normal breathing. 14 of them failed at least one measure, 20 of them failed at least two, and 12 out of 50 failed all three. So you're talking about, you're talking about 25% there failed all three. Only 10% of participants who passed all three dimensions of breathing actually had normal breathing. So we spoke about that. So the tools that Kiesel brought in was a breath hold time of 25 seconds and four questions from the functional movement screen. And the, the four questions are, do you yawn frequently throughout the day? Do you feel tense? Do you wake up with a dry mouth? Do you have cold hands and cold feet? And the conclusion was that if your breath hold time, your bowl score, if it was greater than 25 seconds, there's an 89% chance that their breathing was not dysfunctional. And I'm not sure what's happening with my cursor here. It's all over the place. So the whole objective is to get a bowl score above 25 seconds. Mm -hmm. Now to measure the bowl score, we'll pull that up here. So I'm just going to, so for those of you who want to measure your bowl score, what I suggest is that you're sitting down for about five minutes or so, and you need to have, you know, a timer, secondhand watch or whatever. You have your phone, take a normal breath in and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold your breath and time it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. And at the first definite desire to breathe is to let go, but to breathe in through your nose. So the whole relevance of this is that when you have a low boat score, your breathing is typically faster and harder. And um, when you have a low bowl score, it's also indicative of, of that hyperventilation syndrome. So people typically with a lower bowl score or people typically who have hyperventilation syndrome have a lower bowl score. So the bowl score gives us good feedback of breathing across the number of three dimensions. If you have a low bowl score, your breathing is faster. It's more upper chest. You're more likely to have a regular breathing and it's a measurement of breathlessness. So for example, if somebody comes in with a bowl score of 10 seconds, I know that they will have exercise intolerance. And we've seen it with COVID, people with long COVID, bowl scores of three seconds. Mm -hmm. These individuals couldn't even talk a sentence. They were so caught for breath. So then in terms of the training itself, we go through the different breathing exercises. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna actually go on to the breathing, the biochemistry. Mm -hmm. um, I might just look at that diagram there if it's on page 29. So this is a useful diagram just to get an insight into the dimensions of breathing and looking at breathing then from the three different dimensions. So just bear with me one second. Can you see that, Mike? I can, yes. So we're talking about the biochemistry. We're talking about, and we spoke about this at the very start today, and the interrelationship between it. So this is focused on carbon dioxide. 
And the biomechanics is focused on whether you're breathing low with good amplitude of the diaphragm or whether you're breathing high. And cadence breathing is the practice of breathing slow breathing to between 4.5 to 6.5 breaths per minute. Now in the middle is nasal breathing. So when we're looking at breathing patterns, and I would say, you know, if anybody is listening who teaches breathing, please start looking at breathing, not just from the biomechanical point of view, but look at the potential of the biochemistry. Because if you influence biochemistry, you influence blood circulation. You increase, you can increase oxygen delivery. You know, you can help open up the airways. And also, if you have good biochemistry, you have slower breathing pattern. And a slower breathing pattern then enables you to breathe low. And if you've got good low breathing, again, as we said, the diaphragm in the relationship between the diaphragm, the mind and functional movement, etc. And then diaphragmatic breathing assists in slow breathing. Slow breathing assists in better biochemistry. Nasal breathing is the piece in the middle. They're all interconnected. And that's, that's just functional breathing. This isn't talking about the stress or exercises. Um, and I'm not sure even if we've got time to cover those. But what we'll do is I'll just move down then to the text of, say, breathing light. Now, the acronym I use is LSD. So here we have, for example, why we want to focus on breathing light, breathing slow and breathing deep. And this is the potential in terms of breathing. Reduce breathlessness, harnessing nasal nitric oxide, opening up the airways, improving blood circulation, increasing oxygen delivery, but also calming the mind. And then if we look at, for example, um, cadence breathing, slow breathing, stimulating the vagus nerve, improving alveolar ventilation, that's improving gas exchange from the lungs into the blood, stimulating the baroreceptors, the pressure receptors in the major blood vessels, improving heart rate variability, which is a measure of um, resilience, and also stress coping ability, and also health and performance, and improving respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is a relationship between breathing and the heart rate or speed of the heart rate, and to achieve a better balance of the autonomic nervous system. And then low breathing. We're looking at the benefits of low breathing for slow breathing. It's improving lung volume. It's a better gas exchange, increasing ventilation perfusion, which is gas exchange, improving spinal stab stabilization. So as we said, 50% of people with lower back pain have dysfunctional breathing patterns. So dysfunctional breathing then should be looked at individuals with lower back pain. So this first exercise, by the way, there's 26 exercises in this, so we're not going to get through them, but we'll go through. Um, this one is an interesting one, and this is about breathing very, very light. So it's the opposite to what's commonly taught. So say, for example, here you have your normal breathing pattern, and the individual is taking a normal breath in through their nose and out through their nose, and in through their nose and out through the nose. And what we want to do here is we want to have a very soft and gentle inhalation, almost that your breathing is imperceptible. And at the top of the breath, a total feeling of relaxation to the body and a prolonged and a relaxed exhalation. And then after you breathe out, you're taking a very soft and gentle inhalation through your nose, really soft, gentle inhalation through your nose. And at the top of the breath, a total feeling of relaxation to the body and a gentle and prolonged breath out. And the instruction is, we're sitting up straight in a chair, or you could do a cross-legged on the floor, lie on your back. And if you're sitting, just to imagine there's a piece of string pulling you upwards 
um, from the top of the back of your head. You could have your hands on your chest and tummy, or you could place your hands on your lap. And to observe your breath as it enters and leaves your nose, feel the slightly colder air as it enters your nostrils and feel the slightly warmer air as it leaves your nose. So it's really about bringing attention from the mind onto the breath. And when you can feel your breathing, begin to reduce the speed of each breath as it enters and leaves your nose. So your breathing should be light, it should be quiet, and it should be calm. Slow down your breathing so that you feel hardly any air entering and leaving your nostrils. So your breathing should be so quiet that the fine hair, the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move. Now, by slowing down the speed of your breathing with the intention of breathing less air into the body, the goal is to create a feeling that you would like to take in more air. So you're doing it correctly if you feel breathless or if you feel that you would like to take in more air or if you feel that you're not getting enough breath. To create air hunger, your breathing volume now should be less than what it was before you started. But you shouldn't feel stressed. So if the air hunger gets too strong, take a rest for 20 seconds or so and then start off again. So really the whole emphasis here is on focusing on the airflow coming in and out of the nose and really slowing down the speed of the breath as it enters the nostrils. So your breathing is so smooth that the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move. Can you breathe in so quietly, almost that you feel hardly any air coming into your nose? Can you take the littlest amount of air possible into your nose? And then when you're breathing out, have a really slow and relaxed exhalation. The objective is to breathe less air, <clears throat> the objective is to feel air hunger. Do that for a few minutes. Now, as you do that, check the saliva in the mouth. It's, it's quite normal that when you do this exercise, <clears throat> there's a number of things that are happening. Number one is it's a great meditation because when you are slowing down the speed of your breathing, your mind is anchored onto the breath. So from a meditative point of view, it's really good. And the mind has less of a tendency to wander. So I think it's, it's a great way to support mindfulness. But the other thing is about this is that slowing down the breathing to breathe less air. And you know that you're breathing less air if you feel air hunger. So slow to breathe less air. And you should feel air hunger. And air hunger signifies that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. And as carbon dioxide is increasing, your blood vessels dilate. So I remember I was having cold hands and cold feet and I tried, this was 20 years ago, and I felt a, warm, a warmness coming into my hands. And it's not just that your blood vessels going into the hands dilate, but it's the 70,000 miles of blood vessels throughout the human body. Now, the other thing about this is that you'll notice that most people will notice that they've increased watery saliva in the mouth. And this is an indicator that we've activated the parasympathetic nervous system or we've helped the body to bring the body into relaxation. So people will often as well, they feel drowsy. So this is a very good exercise to do for people with insomnia and for people who are in sympathetic, increased sympathetic drive or stress state. So for, you know, I say to people with anxiety, be careful with doing the exercise because the air hunger, you know, could, could set off a bit of panic but you have to go very, very easy with it. 
Now, we can do a second variation of this, and this is similar enough to the last one, but instead of focusing on the breath in, we're actually focusing on the exhalation. So we are taking a slow breath in through the nose, but the intent is really to have a low and long and prolonged exhalation. Now, this is supposed as you can think of the opera singers of old. They were singing with a candle placed about 10 centimeters from their face. And the intention of the, the, the candle, of course, was lighting. So there was a candle flame there. And uh, the opera singer was to sing with such conservation of the breath that they didn't blow out the candle. Because the training involved, and I suppose it's a recognition that there's a cost associated with hard breathing. If you breathe hard, it can bring on fatigue. And any of your listeners who talk all day, they will know well. They're on a phone all day. They may have meetings all day. They may be teaching. They may be in sales. And at the end of the day, they're pretty much exhausted. They're wiped out. And they're wiped out not because of the mental concentration, but because of the act of talking and the impact that that's having on breathing. So it's causing the person to breathe more. This exercise is good for helping the biochemistry, but also to stimulate the vagus nerve. So you place your finger underneath your nose so that you can monitor the airflow from your nose. And you're bringing your attention onto your finger. And as you feel the warm air on your finger, so it's coming from the breath, gently slow down your breathing so that you can feel hardly any warm air onto your finger. So you're taking a soft and slow breath in through your nose and allow a gentle and prolonged breath out. Breathe so softly that you feel hardly any air blowing onto your finger. Imagine that your finger is a feather and that your breathing is so soft that the feather doesn't move. So if you were to pretend that your finger is a feather and that your breathing is so light that the feather doesn't flutter, the feather isn't moving. And there's no need to hold your breath or to restrict your breathing. It's really just paying attention to the airflow coming onto the finger. And it's about breathing less air. So the more warm air that you feel, the harder you are breathing. Can you quieten and soften your breathing to the point where you feel hardly any air on your finger? You're doing the exercise correctly if you feel a tolerable need for air. I need you to feel like you want to breathe in more air. And you continue practicing that exercise for about four minutes or so. And again, the objective here is to breathe less air. So these two exercises are focusing on the biochemistry. Now, this is a, a third variation, which is cupping the hands on the face and breathing in a very small amount of breath into the nose and a small amount of breath out. Now, this is quite a tough one. So you're cupping your hands on your face and the objective here is to breathe hardly any air. So you're focusing on the airflow coming in and out of your hands. And the more warmer air that you feel coming into your hands, you know the harder you are breathing. So what I would like you to do is to breathe in a flicker of air into your nose and a flicker of air out of your nose. Breathe in for one centimeter or half an inch and breathe out for one centimeter or half an inch. Breathe in for one centimeter half an inch, breathe out for one centimeter, half an inch, breathe in for one centimeter, breathe out for one centimeter. So you're taking a flicker of air in and out of your nose. And as you exhale, 
that gas carbon dioxide enriched air into your hands, you're rebreathing carbon dioxide into your lungs, which increases CO2 in your lungs and increases CO2 in the blood. So the purpose of that exercise is continue with the air hunger for about four minutes. Now, we typically, I'll always focus on the biochemistry first, and then we focus on the biomechanics. And here's where we have individuals, they place their hands either side of the lower ribs. And as they breathe in, the intention is that they're pushing their lower ribs outwards, but you shouldn't hear your breathing. So it's often a mistake that's made when the focus is on improving the biomechanics of breathing. The intention is that, the, you know, oftentimes the student feels that they have to be taking these full big breaths and they don't. Because if you're taking full big breaths, you're sacrificing the biochemistry. You could be. So with this, the person has their hands either side of their lower ribs. And as they breathe in, their ribs are gently moving outwards. And as they breathe out, their ribs are gently moving inwards. So as you breathe in, the ribs are gently moving outwards. And as you breathe out, the ribs are gently moving inwards. And as you breathe in, the ribs are gently moving out. And as you breathe out, the ribs are gently moving in. So this is breathing low or breathing deep in the true sense of the word. That during the inhalation, the diaphragm is moving downwards. And as the diaphragm is moving downwards, there's movement outwards to the sides, to the back and to the front. So we have to think of the core as a box. And at the top of the core is the diaphragm. Um, you, have the, you have the abs to the front, you've got the spinal muscles to the back, and you've got the pelvic floor to the bottom. And then we bring in resonance frequency breathing. And this is slowing down the respiratory rate to between 4.5 and 6 breaths per minute. And this is about stimulating the vagus nerve. So this is really important in terms of, you know, causing or helping with recovery. So when we stimulate the vagus nerve, it's been known since 1913 that by stimulating the vagus nerve, it releases a substance called acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter. And this causes a slowing of the heart. So somebody who wants to recover post-physical exercise, slow breathing, especially a prolonged and relaxed exhalation. But I'd just like to show you something else in this, which is quite interesting. And I'm just going to put in Kevin Tracy. There's more to this, you know, back in 1998, there was a neurosurgeon called Kevin Tracy in New York. And he taught that if we could stimulate the vagus nerve, we can reduce harmful inf inflammation. And you can imagine the number of conditions that inflammation is playing a role. And he was able to electronically stimulate the vagus nerve. And he found that the nervous system could be used almost like a computer to trigger commands that stop a problem in its tracks. And apparently Tracy's colleagues were outside in the corridor placing bets that he wasn't going to achieve what he wanted to achieve. So further trials confirmed Tracy's, Tracy's findings. Using electronic implants to stimulate the vagus nerve in humans, he produced a dramatic reduction and even remission in rheumatoid arthritis, a condition with no cure. 
So this helped to illuminate the vagal system's close interrelationship with the inflammatory system. So the first steps here is that the vagus nerve, by secreting um, so crucially, ACH, acetylcholine, the neurotransmitter secreted by the vagus nerve, it blocks the release of many of the pro-inflammatory cytokines. So these are the cytokines are involved in producing inflammation. If we can stimulate the vagus nerve, can we reduce the production or can we reduce inflammatory cytokines? And then the question to ask is, how can we stimulate the vagus nerve? And we had, I had a, we had as oxygen advantage instructors, we had a seminar with Dr. Jay Wiles, who is an expert in clinical, I think his background is clinical psychology, but he's worked with a lot of people with PTSD and with anxiety. And he's also an oxygen advantage instructor. And he was looking at the exercises from the oxygen advantage, which is basically this book and asking which exercises can we improve heart rate variability? Nose breathing will increase heart rate variability. Breathing light increases heart rate variability. Breathing slow and breathing low. So pretty much all of the exercises that we do in terms of functional breathing patterns can improve heart rate variability. Now, the other point that might just before we go on, in terms of I would say to anybody, you know, if you are looking at breathing, that the application is, is enormous here. Breathing and asthma, breathing for females, diabetes, epilepsy, improving heart rate variability, improving sleep, panic disorder, anxiety, and racing mind, post-COVID. And there's protocols for each of these conditions, as well as chapters, so people can dig deeper into it. So we have exercises as well, then, which are very popular at the moment to stress the body. So there's exercises to improve focus and concentration and exercises to stress the body. I'm going to just go to a couple of them. And I'm going to go to exercise number 24 on page 87 here. And the reason that we're looking at this exercise here is if you do fast full breaths, which is a stressor to the body. And then you exhale and you hold your breath. It's very important that you recover your breathing by breathing light for at least three minutes afterwards. And the other thing that I would say is only do these exercises if you're not pregnant and if you're in good health. Your bold score ideally should be greater than 25 seconds. And the reason I talk about this is because it seems to be that individuals with a low bolt score, when they do hyperventilation and breath tolling, their carbon dioxide levels aren't recovering and it could actually lower their sensitivity to carbon dioxide as opposed to improve it. Whereas an individual with a bolt score above 25 seconds, when they do hyperventilation and breath tolling, they seem to have a better recovery. But I think it's very important that if we stress the body and you stress the body with the speed of the exhalation. So in this instance, it's a very fast exhalation. That's a stressor. Whereas the previous exercises, we had a really slow and relaxed exhalation. 
that brings the body into relaxation. So this exercise is a stressor. We have an exhale hold, exhale to functional residual capacity, and only holding the breath until a moderate air hunger. We don't want blood oxygen saturations dropping down to 60%, to 50%, to 40%. The reason being is we've never done this in a revolution. And I don't know if I want to expose the body to such critically low O2, because I really wonder when is a good stressor becoming a bad stressor? So we want to stress the body, but we want to do it within limits. And then we want to have recovery. And this is where the breathe light exercise is coming in here for three minutes. And just I'll just show one more exercise as a stressor. And this was taken from Yasin um, Sai Weiser, and I'm terrible at pronouncing his name, but he's based in Germany. Interesting guy, 35 years he's been practicing meditation and mixed martial arts. And he used to do cage fighting before the rules come in. So I think his first round would be five minutes and then they had a one minute rest and then they would fight until submission or knockout. So it wasn't for the faint hearted. Here's an exercise that came from him. Quite, quite a useful exercise. And this would be a good exercise to stress the body, but it's not going to disturb everything so much. So for example, you have very short, rapid breaths. So you're exchanging a lot of air in dead space. You're exercising the, the breathing muscles. You are stimulating the vagus nerve. Um, you, will, you will activate a stress response here. You start off with short breaths, short breath in, short breath out, short breath in, short breath out, at a speed that you're comfortable with. And then you increase the speed to between one and three breaths per second. Short, fast breaths with movement of the diaphragm. You do that for one minute and then you breathe light for one minute. So you have the stressor, you have recovery. And then you do a second round, stressor, recovery, and a third round, stressor, recovery. And this is shaking the autonomic nervous system. So, you know, this is just, there are only a few exercises. There's 26 exercises that we have, just different variations of it, but it'll kind of give people an insight into you know the potential here and mm. you know that's where it's at wonderful um patrick thank you so much for taking us through those exercises i'm, I'm definitely going to practice this, some of those latter ones well they seem very interesting i've not come across some of those before um, i'm keen to just ask you actually how do you find the time i'd love to know what your routine looks like a little bit because you seem so busy to me you're always doing podcasts you're teaching different courses to people how do you find the time to be mindful and to write books and do research i'd love to know a bit about what your routines look like yeah like we have to face the reality here that people are not going to do formal exercises for the rest of their life. I did formal breathing exercises up until about 2005. And then I brought in formal exercises into my way of life. And for me, it has been the best way to do it. Mm. So I'll always take time out during the day. And for example, I'm proofing the book, but I'm actually proofing it on my treadmill. So, and as I'm proofing the book, I'm also doing breath tolling. Now, sometimes I use sports mask. So I use a device that's pulling carbon dioxide. So I get the benefits of the biochemistry. Mm -hmm. And then always before, like I give training most evenings because we're a lot of our work is towards the United States. I'll always take an hour, an hour and a half out. And that's when I'll do total relaxation. 
um, get away from the laptop, no mobile phones, bringing my attention inwards, slowing down the breath. So I like to do it in that kind of regime. I always have to get physical exercise in every day, but I'm not an athlete. Um, I'm not a fan of running. So I'll do, you know, at most it would be jogging, fast walking, etc. And typically I'll get in about an hour to an hour and a half a day. Um, the other aspect that I think it's very, very important, Mike, is not to live in my head. I spent 20 years stuck in my head. Mm. And I, you know, I often use the story that my first kind of taste of this was back in 1998. I went to a two hour talk and obviously I had a racing mind at the time because I wouldn't have had such an interest in psychology and the mind unless my mind is racing. Like if you look at people who have who are in psychology, there's a reason that they're drawn to psychology. Mm -hmm. And I think that the reason that they're drawn is that they're drawn to psychology in an effort to try and uh, solve their own mental health problems. You know, so I was drawn to quieting the mind, not from a theoretical point of view. It was to try and get some solace for myself because society puts an awful lot of pressure and the education system, you know, we're trained how to think, but we aren't trained how to control the mind. Mm -hmm. We're not trained how to stop thinking. We're not trained how to bring a quietness to the mind. And it's only with a quietness of the mind can we concentrate. Because if we have a mind that's bombarded with thought, that thought is continuously distracting that we don't have the focus to place what we need to place it upon. So I went to this talk back in 1998. There were two guys giving the talk. It was a guy and a girl. And I just listened as part of an audience, part of a group, small group of people for about two hours. I left that hotel in Dublin and I walked down Grafton Street and it was the first time that I was there. So whatever had done, and it wasn't hypnosis or anything like this, it was more the individuals who were giving the talk were talking from a point, a state of presence. And by doing that, they were able to bring me, and I'm sure other people, but I didn't talk to anybody else about it, so I don't know. Mm. But I felt that when I left there, I was present. Mm. That the chattering mind had quietened. And it was almost as if there was kind of a, you know, a, a movement that... I was then able to come into present moment awareness as opposed, as opposed to my entire attention stuck in my head. Because mm -hmm. I can imagine the number of times I would have walked down Grafton Street before. I went to school in Sing Street. I went to university in TCD. So I was walking that street all the time, most days. And I hardly ever see, saw the street mm -hmm. because I would be walking completely immersed in thought, asleep. And you miss everything because... If we are living in our head, how can we relate to life? We don't. Mm -hmm. We only relate to life for very brief moments when we take our attention out of our head and we focus. And the one thing about the breath was like that gave me a taste of it. And then I did more courses on it. And I, then I went on and I did Vipassana courses, which I thought were wonderful. I did a Tony Quinn course, for example. And this was back in 2000. We, we flew to Egypt. And this will show you the extent, because I was only in my 20s at the time. For two weeks, I paid £15,000 for a two-week course. And I did the two-week course. You know what? It was beneficial. But I never told anybody else ever to go on it. And the reason being is because you can achieve what you could achieve in that course by simply doing a Vipassana course and a 10-day Vipassana course. You know, when I did the Vipassana courses afterwards, 
and it's voluntary. You know, you just donate whatever 300 euro or whatever you feel that's suitable, you know, to the course. So the whole aspect, I would encourage anybody, you know, really check how how often are you actually in the present moment or are you stuck in your head all the time? Because mm-hmm. it's something that's endemic. And I'm assuming that the reason that it hasn't come into education is because most school teachers are stuck in their heads, you know, and it should be in religion. And it would have been the pillars of religion, spirituality. You know, when we're talking about spirituality, we're talking about the degree to which we have stopped thinking and the degree to which we're connected with life. Like as human beings, are we actually here or are we living in our heads? And how on earth are we living life? And how on earth are we connecting with life through the five senses, through our sight, sound, touch, taste, smell, etc.? You know, it, it's really, and it's a habit. It's a habit that, is, as Oscar Wilde said, he said, he said, thinking is a disease and people die with just like any other disease. And he's correct because how many people die by suicide every year? Mm-hmm. How many people need to take antidepressant medications? And when you talk to these individuals, how many people are on drugs? You know, how many junkies are out there? They need their fix. Why? because they're trying to escape pain Mm -hmm. and the pain is coming from the mind. And when you think about somebody with mental health issues, you know, the racing mind, how can we teach or how can, what can we do to bring a quietness to the mind? Focusing on the breath is definitely one, but it's not enough. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is not enough. You know, I know SN Goenka would say, never change your breathing. And I will say, absolutely change your breathing because if your respiratory physiology is off, you need to address that. You need yeah. to improve blood flow to the brain. You need to increase carbon dioxide because it has a calming effect on the central nervous system. You need to breathe through your nose. You need to get better sleep. You need to breathe low using the diaphragm. And people might say, well, oh my God, that's totally unachievable. No, start off with one thing. Start off with nasal breathing. Start off with nasal breathing. And the one thing that really changed my life was ch- taping my mouth at night, mm-hmm. getting my mouth closed, waking up, feeling alert and refreshed. You know, we're talking now, we started about 7.30. You know, it's, it's okay, but we're fairly bright at 7.30. And there's times that I've started working three and four o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. you know, especially when I'm trying to get a book done. And that's the benefit of this, because I remember as a teenager going into school, I would be absolutely exhausted and falling asleep at the desk. And the teachers thought I had no interest. Like I was one of these students that the teacher had absolutely no interest in because I didn't have the capacity to focus and concentrate because of poor sleep. But nobody ever told me, breathe through your nose. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever said, how can we show you how to concentrate? Because concentration is the tool and it's a tool that we need for the rest of our lives. And only can we concentrate when the mind is quiet, when we can bring a stillness between thoughts. If the mind is constantly in a state of agitation, we cannot concentrate. But what's more, we're not happy. Mm. So happiness is related to the degree which we can quieten the mind. And through the breath, by bringing our attention into the present moment, by taking our attention out of the mind and into the body, we can help bring a quietness to the mind. And these are skills that 
I bring into my everyday life because I am not sure, Mike, how would I have coped? You know, I'm nearly 50 years of age now. So I have a few miles in the clock. How would I have coped without the tools that I came across accidentally 20, 25 years ago? They have been absolutely instrumental in my work, in my productivity, in intuition, in creativity. All of those tools that we need to survive and thrive. You know, I feel for the guy who's going into the corporate environment, he's in a stressful environment. And if on top of that, he has poor sleep, poor breathing patterns, what on earth, what is happening there? You know, that's a toll on that individual. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, we're all as human beings, we're all seeking happiness. And that's where it's at. Yeah. And I just think about that poor corporate person and then they've probably got a bad posture as well. They're yeah. probably not, they're probably not getting daylight. They're probably getting distractions everywhere. Emails, WhatsApps, yes. everything's going on. And then you just come home and you're just exhausted. You've been talking all day. So uh, thank you. Uh, I think that was a really beautiful and lovely summary about mindfulness. And you said something once when I was in one of your training for the Oxygen Vantage, it was something along the lines of people put on a music track and they don't even hear it after the first few seconds. Yes. And, and that that really hit home with me when you said that. Thought, oh, that's me. Because I put the music on, but I, I actually put it on to go and think. And then I'm just constantly thinking. And um, it was only the other day, actually, I read a, I read a book by uh, author Robin Sharma. And it's called um, The 5am Club. I don't know if you've come across this. Wonderful book. No, I've come uh, across some of his other books. But yeah, not that yeah. one. I, I, I then read The Monk Who Sold the Friar, which was also fantastic. But mm. there was I just started um, giving myself a little bit of time in the morning. Just, mm. just to do nothing because I'm, I'm constantly distracted. So I thought, right, I'm going to have just 20 minutes and I'll do a bit of journaling yeah. and a bit of thinking. And for the first time, it's only happened to me the other week, I was in the shower and I noticed the pattern on the tiles. And I was like, oh, that's a nice shower. And I was like, and it was the first, I, I can't remember the last time I had that moment of clarity of like, this is really nice. And I, and I just was in, a bit like you with the street in, in Dublin. I was like, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm present now. And I'm just, I'm just enjoying this environment. I'd never, I've been in that shower hundreds of times never noticed the pattern so, so there you go but um so, so th thank you so where can uh where can people find your book and uh, what's that just reminds us of the title again yeah so the title is the breathing cure and um it's available from our website it will be on amazon as well at amazon.co.uk so it's available from oxygenadvantage.com or butecoclinic.com so it's released on the 8th of february so within one week so that's why i'm in a rush to proof <laughs> well guys i'll put the links in the description below please go ahead and get that book and uh if you don't know much about the oxygen advantage get onto that website as well and uh, and start looking at all that good stuff patrick once again thank you so much for your time it's always a pleasure to talk to you really appreciate it and uh yeah guys we'll see you on the next podcast cheers everybody thank you mike cheers <laughs>